0: You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Our call and our mission here at University Presbyterian Church are to share hope in Jesus Christ. Because that hope comes with a recognition that Jesus Christ is Lord, we are paying particular attention to the book of Ezekiel uh, this month. Because in the book of Ezekiel, there is a refrain that comes more than 70 times. Again and again and again, we read, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. And then they shall know that I am the Lord. This is uh, what theologians call a recognition formula. And we are called to make Jesus Christ recognizable here in this city and around the world that all might have the hope that we have found in him. We're asking the question, how does Jesus Christ become apparent, therefore, in the lives of aliens? And as we've been looking at Ezekiel, we've seen several actions as God gives this uh, many gifts to these people who are living in exile, these aliens and strangers in a foreign land in, in Babylon We're paying attention to the gifts he gives them and the actions that follow from those gifts. And we've seen several. We began by seeing that God calls us to be a people of empathy and to listen for folks' feelings. We've seen that God calls us to be affirmers, those who can affirm the the new sprigs of vitality in the lives of other people around us. We've seen that God calls us to point, to be sentinels, to point uh, to Jesus. As well, uh, Jesus is inviting us into his ministry as a shepherd, a ministry of compassion with those in our lives. Today we see that God gives and calls his people to love, covenant love. In our text, the Lord says to this uh, exilic people, I will give you a new heart. And I believe that's God's promise to us as well this morning, that God will give me, that God will give you a new heart. He's ready to do so. Let's open our Bible to Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, which you'll find on page 704 of the Pew Bible. I find the page numbers helpful when we're looking for Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, uh, verses 22 through 28, and if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read God's Word aloud together. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, we're reading God's Holy Word. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God when through you I display my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe my ordinances. Then you shall live in the land that I gave to your ancestors. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. A woman got a new heart, and it's kind of surprising. I came across a story recently. Maybe you heard it. It was surprising not because she had had uh, transplant surgery, uh, even though in 1988 when uh, Sylvia, uh, when Claire Sylvia received this heart and lung transplant, it was a relatively rare procedure, first one in New England, Yale University. It would have been surprising, I suppose, but the story that she tells after was even more surprising. See what happened. Apparently, Sylvia Clare finds herself recovering from this surgery. And because it was a, sort of a historic nature in that region, there were reporters who came to her hospital room. And as she comes out of the ICU, they put a question to her and they say, Now, uh, Claire, what is it that you, now that you have this new life, what is it that you want to do? And she surprised herself by her response. She said, What I really want is a beer. And she, she was kind of shocked by the flip nature of that comment. Where did that come from? She began to think about it, and she developed a theory, because she had these new cravings. She, she was a classically trained ballet dancer, very disciplined. She did not drink beer. And uh, she yet began to have these cravings for Kentucky Fried Chicken and other things. She, the theory was that maybe the heart had come from an 18-year-old male. So Sorry, guys. I don't know where she gets this idea, but in fact, you know, she comes to find out that this was the case. It was confidential, but she, through a series of coincidences, she's able to narrow down the, the, the story of the donor from which the heart had come. And she began to feel that she was taking something of his personality into her own personality. And a strange thing, she claimed to even be walking, like a man over the years. She wrote a book about this, and uh, the physicians and the scientists have never been able to make any sense of this claim. But it is interesting that with a new heart might come a new life. And this is the assurance of the Scripture. When God looks at you and He says, I have a new heart for you. It's not like the old heart. It's a stony heart. This is a heart of flesh. It's soft and tender. It's not like the broken spirit that's within you that's hurt and distrustful. It is my spirit. And I I will put it within you. And you can be assured it will begin to change your life. It will begin to give you new appetites, new affections new courage and strength of will, a new life, a new way of walking through life. And so when the prophet here tells us, when God tells us, there's a new heart that awaits you this morning, he's not just talking about an organ, physical organ. When the Bible speaks of a heart, speaks of the health of an individual, what's at the center of the life, and Jesus himself teaches us that the true health of a person is not measured by his pulse, but by the love he or she experiences. This is the greatest commandment, that you will love the Lord God with all your heart, that you'll love your neighbor as yourself. And so how is your heart? And are you, like me, ready to hear this promise this morning that God wants to swap it out for something new? The heart itself is not an organ. It's more a quality of love. It's a new kind of love. It's a new capacity to love. And I would call that love this morning covenant love. You see, this promise that comes here in the 6th century B.C. echoes in other places in the Scripture. Jeremiah, likely a mentor to Ezekiel in chapter 31-31, also is given a vision of a coming change of heart for God's people. The days are surely coming, he writes in chapter 31-31. Says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. That's God's covenant love. It's a love that never gives up on his people, never gives up on any person. The problem for you, if you're like me, is that you and I have been raised with a different quality of love, not covenant love at all, but what I would call this morning contract love. A love that sees itself under obligations only so far as the other party in the contract is likewise obligated. And if I could summarize contract love, I would use two words. If you, I want to make sure you heard me say that right, if you, that is if you do this, I will love you. But if you don't, I really don't have to. Anymore. You and I were raised with contract love. Recently, uh, I had the privilege of being with my uh, family of origin. We were gathered with our spouses around a table. It's my two sisters and all of their spouses, my wife, my parents. And we were just talking about our families. And I don't know how it came up, but we started talking about middle children. Do we have any middle children here? Uh, okay, my, my uh, sister says, you know, the middle child in her family is like the, is, is like the uh, fair police. It took me a second to get that. She goes, yeah, not fair, right? Something about being between two siblings that makes you very acutely aware of what everybody else is getting, and you want to make sure you get just as much as anybody else. That's about uh, contract love. It's it's, it's measuring what everybody else gets and and making sure you don't get any less, nor do you give any more than what's being passed around. we laughed at all of our, because we all have three kids, we all have a middle child, and we all were going, yep, that's, you know, what we're, and I don't want to, I don't want to characterize anybody who's here, but in our families, that is the case, and, and uh, my father had had a couple of glasses of wine, looked around, and he said, but that's funny, um, that, and he, and actually, none of the outlaws are middle child, so there's only one middle child in the whole table, and it was my sister, and he said, you know, the interesting thing is, that's never the way you were, and he looks at my sister across the table, and uh, she just turns bright red and goes, you know, this has been a really nice evening, and I'm not going to comment on that. Uh, <laughs> but we're all that way. In marriage, I'm not helping you with the dishes because you didn't help me with the meal. You know that comment you made last night when we were friends with friends? It really hurt, and I'm angry. And oftentimes we're not aware of the hurt. We're aware of the anger. We don't know what it's coming from, but it's coming out of a pool of contract love. I was hurt. And I won't feel right until you're hurt also, because you got it coming. How many times do I go there in my own marriage? And, I, and every time I do, it comes back to bite me. Someone said, "Covenant uh, contract love, you're right. Covenant love, you're happy. I don't know if that's true, but if that works. Um, but truthfully... It is contract love that has shaped the dynamics in the neighborhoods in our lives, whether your neighborhood is your family, your co-workers, people that you live next door to. Contract love gives us a justification to withhold love from the people around us. You know, I lived for two decades in New England, and you could live for four decades in New England and never even know the name of your neighbor, never even talk to them. That's the beauty of the place from an introvert's perspective. But... But, you know, you say, hey, she's never talked to me, so I don't have to talk to her. And it becomes a justification for not crossing that line to show love or concern or care for somebody else. This is the story of the whole Bible. I mean, the contract love runs right through from the beginning to the end. It starts in the Garden of Eden when the serpent says, don't you think God is withholding something from you? Really? He doesn't want you to eat that tree because he knows if you do, then you'll be like him. And so we work this contract game even with God. And it starts to work out through relationships. Adam and Eve, when God comes back and they've eaten the fruit, Adam says, the woman that you gave me, she's the one who's responsible. Throws her under the bus. Cain and Abel, contract love, ends up murderously. Jacob and Esau, these two brothers, vying for who gets what to make sure that they get more than the other one. And then Joseph and his brothers. It's all a story of contract love. And here we are in 586 B.C. Everything has come unglued. We're an alien community in exile. Our homeland has been destroyed. The temple is lost. We're displaced persons scraping by in the shadow of foreign superpower. All is lost because we have played the game of contract love to the bitter end. And we were given a land that was flowing with milk and honey and we've left it flowing with nothing but blood. Ezekiel calls us to our attention. Actually, the Lord through Ezekiel says, there's blood on you. You're unclean. And he also references not just the violence of contract love, but the idolatry. How we say to God, God, if you will not give me what I want, then I will make my own God. And the Israelites have done that. And it has caused deep pain. And now they're lost. And they have no rights. And they deserve nothing. And yet here's the surprise. God comes and says, though you deserve nothing, I will give you everything. Verse 22. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act. But for the sake of my holy name. Now at first I read that and I go, whoa, what's up with that? You know, I've been cultivated by the consumerism of our culture and I've been told you deserve a break today. And here God says, I'm not going to actually do this for you. What does that mean? He's not saying you won't benefit from it. He's saying I'm giving you a different motive. He's saying I'm not doing this if you. I'm not doing this if you get your life back together. I'm not doing this if you promise to be a good person, if you help me, if you get on board with my mission. I'm not doing this for any of these if you reasons that you think I'm doing it for. I'm doing it because of my holy name. It's covenant love. In the Old Testament times, a name is your reputation. It speaks to what is on the inside, the core of a person's being. God is saying, the core of my being is love without conditions. Love that doesn't ask the price. Love that pays the cost. Unconditional love. I'm doing it because I just love you and I love to love. And if you pay attention to the story of the Bible, from God's perspective, it is not a story of contract love. It's a story of covenant love of a God who will not stop until he has gathered for himself a people, all people, who know how loved they are. His heart won't be satisfied. His name won't be known in its sacred holy character. James B. Torrance, a theologian, describes covenant love. He says, divine covenants have their source in the divine initiative. That is in God, in his heart, in the loving heart of God, Torrance writes. God conceives of the covenant. God announces it. God confirms and establishes it. And carries it through to fulfillment. And the motive is love. The form of the covenant is the indicative of grace. That is the statement of fact. The promise, I will be your God and you shall be my people. That is not aspirational on God's part. That's a statement of fact. Because he is faithful to his covenant love. And he will make it happen. In your life and in mine, I will give you a new heart, he says. It's not a sentimental love. It's deeply sacrificial and costly. And that's why in the fullness of time, we see it most clearly in Jesus Christ, the incarnate God, who has come not to display God's true nature with works of power or postures of glory or self-righteous judgments. He could do all of that. But his real heart is displayed in the humiliation of the suffering servant, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who comes to bear our stripes that we might be healed and hangs on the cross with a word of forgiveness for us. This is how God sanctifies. This is how God shows the holiness of his name, his heart. He reveals it on the cross of Jesus Christ. And for us today, most personally, on this table, as he says to each and every one of us, do you want my heart? from this heart that lives are changed. You don't have this kind of love in your life and stay the same. You don't. You're going to start to walk differently. You're going to start to think differently. You're going to start to love differently. Richard Mao, the president of uh, Fuller Seminary, told a story in the current issue of Christianity Today about a man whose life was changed by God in pursuit of him. It was a surprise for him as It is for us when we find out God is pursuing us in love, too. Mao writes, The man recounted a time when he was increasingly successful in his business dealings while increasingly dissolute in his personal lifestyle. Drinking heavily, unfaithful to his wife, distant from his children, his marriage headed toward divorce. His wife and daughters were active in church life, but he never attended One Saturday evening, after he had downed several martinis, his ten-year-old daughter pleaded with him to come to church the next morning. Her singing group was going to participate in the service, and she wanted her father there. He reluctantly agreed, something he greatly regretted the next morning when he woke up with a hangover. But he kept his promise. In that service, he said, he heard for the first time in his life that he was a guilty sinner who needed salvation and that Jesus had taken his sin and guilt upon himself on the cross of Calvary. The man wept as he heard the sermon, and he pleaded with God to take away his burden of shame. From that point on, his life took a new direction. God is pursuing you, and he's pursuing me, and i got to tell you, there is nothing I need more than to know in life that there is someone who loves me, not for who I, what I can do or what I have done or who I can be, but he just loves me for who I am because that's who he is. And God loves you that way as well. He's pursuing you with unconditional love. God reveals his heart for us in his covenant love. That was the gift to this community in exile and his gift to us today. But there's a corollary to this. And that's that God reveals his heart for our neighbors through our covenant love. Do you see the opportunity implicit in this text? If you read down to verse 23, you see how global this personal experience of love becomes. It says, I will sanctify my great name. And then at the end of the verse... The nations shall know that I am the Lord when through you I display my holiness before their eyes. When through you my covenant love finds expression in their lives. The nations, that's our neighbors, they're going to be able to say, Jesus Christ is Lord it's interesting. This is how Jesus prays. You know, you know about his high priestly prayer the night that he's betrayed. It's the longest prayer we have of Jesus Christ. It's in John seventeen, the last verse of it, 20, verse twenty six. In fact, if, if you have a Bible, feel free to flip over to John seventeen, verse twenty six. I think that Jesus, the great high priest, is echoing the words of this young adult Ezekiel. Remember, he starts. His, he's, he's deported at age twenty five. And he's also a priest. He was a priest in training, and Jesus picks up on this notion of a new heart when he says to the Father in prayer, I made your name known to them. How did he do that? Through his love. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known. I'm going to keep making your covenant, known, covenant love known to these people. And here's why. So that the love with which you have loved me, Father, may be in them, and I in them. The new heart is the heart of Jesus. God says to us through this text, I love you as much as the Father loves the Son. Jesus says, do you remember the love that you, with which you've loved me from all eternity, Father? I want them to know that that's our love for them as well. And then I want that love to be in them, to find expression to the people in their lives as well. And the way that I pray that you'll do that is by letting my heart be in them. A new quality, a new capacity to love unconditionally. Covenant love. The mark of the early church was not its success, it was not its budget, it was not the numbers of people that subscribed or came to services. It was not their power, their influence, their glory, it was how they loved one another. Bill Bright used to use a phrase that I think is very helpful. If you ask yourself, how is it that we can do this? He would say, "Well, you love by faith? And I I found that very helpful over the years. You know, we asked the question, how could we ever, after we've been so, uh, so cultivated, so steeped in contract love, could we ever intercept it and exchange it for covenant love? The answer is we'd love by faith. See, we're not called to love if you. We're called to love from him. That, that'd be the two-word phrase I would, I would replace. Covenant love is from him. God says, I do it from my heart. We don't do it from our hearts. We do it from his heart. So we do it from him. That's why I love. That's how I love. And I do it as an act of faith. It's not sentimental love, this from him love. Sometimes it involves very hard things. How many parents have looked in the eyes of their kids as the pediatrician puts a needle in, in, in the child 's arm and you see it in their look expression, "Mommy, why are you letting her do this to me it 's because you love her, or, or sometimes we, we will have to do the hard work of forgiveness and it 's dangerous or sometimes it 's tough love where we 're drawing a boundary for the sake of a family 's health or an individual 's health it 's not sentimental it 's costly. But it is his love at work in us. Paul got this in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He says, For the love of Christ urges us on. For Christ's love within us urges us on because we're convinced that one has died for all. He he says more about this in Galatians 2.20 where he says, It's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I live and I love by faith. Bill Wright was explaining what he meant by uh, loving by faith one time as he uh, spoke to a group of college students, as he oftentimes did, and this is what he said about one particular woman. He said, I challenged the students at the conference to become part of a revolution of love. I suggested that they make a list of all the individuals that they did not like. I thought about doing that today, by the way, but I thought, we probably don't have time. (laughs) And begin to love them by faith. Early the next morning, a young woman with sparkling eyes and a face aglow said to me, my life was changed last night. For many years, I've hated my parents. I haven't seen them since I was 17. And now I am 22. I left my home as a result of a quarrel five years ago and haven't written or talked to them since, though they've tried repeatedly to encourage me to return home. I determined that I would never see them again. I hated them. Before becoming a Christian a few months ago, she continued, I had become a drug addict, a dope pusher, and a prostitute. But last night, you told me how to love my parents, and I could hardly wait to get out of that meeting and call them. Can you believe it? I now really love them with God's kind of love and can hardly wait to see them. This is the the audacious... Nature of incarnational thinking. That God has put us into people's lives so that he can love them through us. And you say, God, no. Don't you have anybody else? Don't you have a better way of doing this? You want to use me? And God's answer, frankly, is, no, I don't. I don't have anything better than you. I have chosen you as my instrument of love in those particular people's lives. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You and I are representatives of the King in our neighborhoods. A few quick examples of this. There's a woman who knows bitterness, not love, because... Her husband's mother has been living with them for two years, and it is straining their relationship, and, and she misses that marriage. But she comes to a moment where she realizes the, the covenant love of God active in her life, and she begins to step back and says, you know, I love, what I love about my husband is that he cares for his mom, and what I love about my mother-in-law is her commitment to this family, and, and you know what, beyond all that, I love for him, and it reorients her capacity to get over the bitterness and find love. An elderly man will show up early at the uh, Everett parking lot, Boeing, and see many, many empty spaces, but will park by the fence, the farthest spot from the door. And if you ask him why, he says, well, it's because I came here early and a lot of other people are going to come here late. And because they'll be late, they'll need to be near the door so they can get to work. Somebody else, a young man at the food district. This is a guy I, I, I came across just this week as I had the privilege of working in the university uh, food bank, U-district U food bank. If you want to see a beautiful picture of the church, hang out in places like that with folks who are poor. you see why Jesus is blessed are the poor. There's just one guy, and I'm stocking the, the, the bread, the bakery section, and there's one cake. It's a beautiful cake with white frosting and cherries on it, and I, I stick it up on the highest. I'm told to put the sweets up top, so it's up there on the shelf. And there's this guy who walks up, young adult, and he goes, who's that for? And I said, it is for you. And, and I, so I pull it down, and he looks at it, and you can see his mouth starting to water. And, and, uh, but he says, no, I don't think I better take that. And I said, why? It's for you. He said, no, well, see, I'm just uh, by myself, and it would take me several days to eat that. And I think there's going to be a family that's going to come in here, and they'll be able to see it, sit down and enjoy that all at once. And I wanted to say, don't be dumb, man. This cake is for you. <laughs> but I could see what was going on in his heart. And so together, the two of us, we took that cake and we put it back up on that top shelf. We waited for somebody else to come along. That showed me the heart of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to disclose our leader and his presence. And this is how we share hope in Jesus Christ. He's given us a new heart, and we use that heart to love the people around us. It's the heart of Jesus Christ. Through you, the Spirit of God, we'll be leading your neighbors to your leader, Jesus. We'll close with a quote from Robert Farrar Capon, who uh, invites us to live lives shaped by grace, by God's grace in Christ. He says, grace is the celebration of life, relentlessly hounding all the non-celebrants in the world It's a floating cosmic bash, shouting its way through the streets of the universe, flinging the sweetness of cassations to every window, pounding at every door in a hilarity beyond all liking and happening until the prodigals come out at last and dance. And the older brothers finally take their fingers out of their ears. And I would just add, and then they will know that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we confess we are so incapable of waking up to your love in our own life. We'll spend all of eternity amazed at how much you love us. So break our hearts with your love, snap apart the hardness, replace them with these hearts of flesh, let your spirit have his way in our lives, give us the capacity, protect us as we go out in love in a dangerous world with the love of Jesus Christ, sustained by your love for them and for us. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake and glory. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call two zero six five two four seven three zero one, extension one one seven.